1: Today we're going to talk about some major, major redistricting wins for Democrats that could very well mean the difference between a Republican majority and a Democratic majority in the House. I interviewed Congressman Jamie Raskin about the January 6th committee. Whether Trump will be called to testify, the dangers of the DOJ and attorney generals not moving fast enough, and how he's holding up after his own personal traumatic events. And I'm joined by Texas State Representative James Tellerico to discuss yet another cold snap that's left tens of thousands of Texans freezing, and the reason that Greg Abbott was content to let that happen. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. So, we have a lot of good news this week, and we don't get it often so. God damn it, that's what we're going to cover. So according to the Cook Political Report's Dave Wasserman, for the first time in the redistricting process, Democrats are potentially set to gain two to three seats through redistricting. And of course, you know, a few caveats. These are predictions, first and foremost, and there are still more states that have to finalize their maps. So you know, the needle could move in either direction. But as it stands right now on paper, Democrats are in a position where we could actually see a relative benefit from redistricting. So let's start with some of the biggest redistricting weapons that Democrats were able to use. In New York, where an independent commission drew the maps, but the legislature, which ultimately has the final say, took over, those maps are going from 19 to 8 in Democrats' favor to 22 to 4 in Democrats' favor. That's three gain seats for Democrats and four fewer seats for Republicans in a state that's probably the Democrats' biggest redistricting weapon. In Illinois, we're looking at two fewer Republican seats and one more Democratic seat, another Major redistricting weapon. Maps in New Mexico and Oregon would also add another two seats for Democrats. Dems are also benefiting from governors acting as buffers to Republican-led state legislatures, and we've seen Democratic governors vetoing maps in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, and in Kansas. All of which would have been devastating for Democrats if we didn't have those buffers, given how extreme the Republicans in those states are. And of course, uh, can't forget the Democrats have benefited big time in the courts. In Alabama, a federal court has blocked Republicans' congressional maps, telling lawmakers that a second black majority district is required, and that could shift Alabama's congressional delegation from 6 to 1, which is what it currently stands at, and what the new maps would have been, to 5 to 2. So a gain of another seat for Democrats. In Ohio, which I spoke about a couple weeks back, the state Supreme Court struck down the state's congressional maps on a four to three ruling with the Republican chief justice siding with Democrats and finding the map unconstitutional. And that map was a 13 to two gerrymander, as opposed to the 12 to four current gerrymander in a state that Republicans only won 56 percent of the votes in. So now lawmakers have 30 days. And if they can't manage to figure out a suitable map, then a redistricting commission steps in. In Pennsylvania, just before a lower court Trump appointed judge was set to decide which congressional map to choose the Democratic majority Pennsylvania Supreme Court stepped in and took over the process. (laughs) And like, just so you know how much of a bullet we just dodged in PA, this is what that pro-Trump judge's website says, the judge who almost ruled on the maps. Here's some quotes. She is the only judge in America to order the 2020 presidential election results not be certified. And here's another one. She is the only judge running for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to be praised by President Trump. So yeah, uh, bullet definitely dodged. And finally, in North Carolina, the 4-3 Democratic Majority Supreme Court struck down Republicans 10-4 gerrymandered maps as unconstitutional. So now it's possible the Democrats could even gain on the current 8-5 maps, considering this is a state that's basically split 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans. So that's where we're at right now. You would be hard pressed to say that Democrats haven't caught a ton of lucky breaks and that Democrats aren't being well served by lawyers like Mark Elias, who are you know, working their asses off to make sure that some of these egregious gerrymanders are struck down. And granted, before we celebrate, just know that Republicans still have weapons of their own. We're still waiting on Florida's maps, uh, Texas's maps, and Georgia's maps are still being litigated. But there's something to be said for being in better shape than we expected and to take the wins where we can get them. But here is my biggest caveat. None of this is to say that gerrymandering is good, that Democrats were able to at least momentarily, put themselves in a good position doesn't mean that we benefit from gerrymandering, because the truth is that without gerrymandering, if gerrymandering was illegal, imagine how much bigger our majorities would be. Like, we're not a 50-50 country. Our House majority should not be on a knife's edge. Republicans got 7 million fewer votes than Democrats in the last election. In the last eight general elections, Republicans won the popular vote once. So, like, if we're able to hold on to the House, thanks to some fortuitous events, and and that's a big if, it doesn't mean that we benefited from this process. It just means that by the skin of our teeth, we didn't get royally screwed by it. But either way, we do still get screwed. It's still Republicans who net an advantage from redistricting. All we're talking about here is how much we're able to chip away at that advantage and to keep our heads above water. And one last point here. Remember, despite all of this, that it means nothing if people don't turn out. Let Virginia be a lesson. We could have the voters just like we could have winnable congressional districts on paper. But unless we turn those voters out, we could still lose. So none of this is to suggest that we got this in the bag because we don't. Biden's approval ratings as they stand are still low. And we're fighting against history here when it comes to the party out of power's performance in midterm elections. But a lot can happen in the next few months. Biden's presiding over record jobs numbers. We've just had 7 million jobs added in the last 12 months, which is the most in U.S. history. COVID cases and deaths are dropping. Uh, Supply chain issues. Inflation will hopefully ease up and we can still see some iteration of Build Back Better. So time will tell. But if you needed some reasons to hold out hope, I think we finally have a few. Next up is an interview with one of my all time favorite people, Congressman Jamie Raskin. Today we have someone who needs no introduction, Congressman Jamie Raskin. Thanks so much for coming back on. I'm delighted to be with you, Brian. So, you know, the last time we spoke, uh, Trump's impeachment lawyers went on to use a-, a clip from our interview as part of their their fight compilation. You'd uttered the word fight during our interview, which very clearly achieved their goal of proving that Democrats are exactly the same as Trump, who incited an insurrection on the Capitol. Right.
2: You know, I always wondered, well, why didn't they show that we used the word the and they used the word the? Yeah. It, it wasn't like our case for his having incited a violent insurrection against the union was based on one phrase or one word. Yeah. It was an entire course of conduct. So they yeah. may as well have said they used the word Congress and Trump used the word Congress. I mean, it was silly.
1: Right well you know uh that among among other airtight elements of their of their argument you know surprised they couldn't uh, surprised that didn't work out for them
2: we'll live in history together because of that phrase right. because i hey. said fight like hell on the Brian Tyler Cohen shows
1: if, if it's a choice between being on Jamie Raskin's side or Trump's side during that impeachment trial, I wear it as a badge of honor that I showed up alongside you <laughs> on that screen. So
2: I appreciate that.
1: So with that said, uh, you sit on the January 6th committee. I think a lot of people out here are impatient. You know, we've seen indictments for low level January 6th participants, and we've heard about subpoenas and private testimonies through the January 6th committee. But otherwise, as far as the general public can tell, there's still very little we can point to, especially in terms of holding the big fish accountable. So can you give an overview of where the committee stands and what the next major benchmarks or milestones are going to be?
2: Well, first, let me say a word about the prosecutions, because I think that's an unduly pessimistic reading of where the Department of Justice is. I mean, 750 um, prosecutions and investigations and lots of people in jail now i mean you know i've got colleagues marjorie taylor green and matt gates who go down to the dc jail and demand the release of what they call these political prisoners and of course donald trump is talking about pardoning them like most organized crime prosecutions and investigations um this one is working its way up you start with the little fish and then they Help to point you to the medium fish, and then they helped to point you to the big fish. And that's how it works. So um, you know, don't forget that there's been the indictment for seditious conspiracy of um, Stuart Oath Rhodes, keepers. and the Oath Keepers ring, that's just one of multiple domestic violent extremist groups who operated in what I call the realm of the insurrection, the people who came in planning for a violent struggle, smashed our windows broke down our doors beat up our cops um and helped turn the outer ring of the demonstration into a mob riot yeah uh, but you're right to point our attention to the very inside of the seditious activity in that day which was the realm of the coup and it's an odd word to use in the american parlance because we don't have a lot of experience with coups and we think of a coup as something taking place against a president. This was a coup orchestrated by the president, against the vice president, and against the Congress. And we've not seen any criminal prosecutions there yet, but I seem to believe that the evidence is building. In any event, over on the congressional side, the uh, bipartisan Select Committee on January 6, we have made remarkable progress in terms of assembling information at every level of seditious activity taking place, and we're getting a much more comprehensive and fine-grained portrait of what happened. Even though it's true, you know, Donald Trump and his immediate entourage have been trying to sandbag and obstruct the committee, but we've won pretty much every case in court uh, that has been uh, filed by either side, and we have rulings at every level, all the way up to the Supreme Court, that executive privilege is just not operative for a former president trying to hide his involvement in a violent insurrection against the union. Now, when will
1: public hearings be? And using your best judgment, do you believe that issuing a subpoena for Trump to testify publicly will be necessary?
2: Well, if we want Trump to testify, definitely using a subpoena will be necessary. Uh, As you might recall from the second impeachment trial, I sent him a letter uh, saying that he had put into issue. specific facts that we had alleged and documented in our case and therefore he needed to come and testify to clear it up because only he could his team rejected his participation in less time that than it took him to respond to uh the insurrection in the capitol um, And um,
1: which was a pretty long time, by the
2: way, that was three hours. We heard (laughs) back from him, I think in two hours, maybe it was an hour and 45 minutes. But um, so we will need to subpoena him if we're going to hear from him. I think that hearings are likely to come at the end of April or in May. Um, You know, they have uh, definitely slowed us down by a month or two by the stuff they've been doing, but we're going to get all the information that we need. And those hearings, I hope, will be two or three weeks of daily hearings. Uh, perhaps in prime time, or they might vary in time, but that tell a complete story of what took place, how it took place, what are are the causes behind it? And then significantly, what do we need to do to prevent this from ever happening again, to fortify our democratic institutions against coups and insurrections? Now, you'd mentioned that
1: that you've won just about all of your court cases. Those include issuing subpoenas, forcing people to comply. If you issue a subpoena to Trump to come and testify, is there any way that he can get around it? Is there any way that he can deny his involvement?
2: Well, I mean, of course, he has a right to assert his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination, which I suppose he would do in the end. Now, that is a privilege that you have to assert in person with respect to specific questions. It's not a magic wand that you wave over an entire inquiry. Um, and, you know, his executive uh, privilege claims or former executive privilege claims are absolutely fraudulent, just like his claims to be able to keep secrets about insurrections and coups, have no standing in law. So all that stuff is going down. I mean, it's pretty much already gone down. Um, so it, you know, it may be a, a race against time. We'll see. Um, you know, he will either get up there and tell the truth and completely convict himself of being at the center of this uh, attack on American democracy, this attempt to overthrow the 2020 election and coerce Mike Pence into unilaterally rejecting electoral college votes, or he'll lie, he'll commit perjury. Um, And, you know, I know it's a matter of enormous frustration to the public. It's just maddening to people that he's gotten away with so many crimes. I mean, he is a, you know, one man constitutional crime wave and old (laughs) fashioned felony crime wave too. Um, And he travels with an army of lawyers and he's always at his daddy's money to bail him out. But, uh, you know, I'm with Dr. King. I think the the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice and it's gonna catch up with him.
1: Well, you know, you'd mentioned delay tactics. Bannon didn't comply with his subpoena. He was indicted in November and then his trial date was set for July. That's obviously a really long time. And so if the goal is delay, then that tactic appears to be pretty effective. So would the precedent of Bannon's delay be enough to dissuade the committee from trying to compel Trump to appear? And and if so, wouldn't that be just giving the guy exactly what he wants?
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of different tactics that are out there. We've tried different things. Different things are working better than others. Um, the, you know, there, there are criminal contempt actions, there are also civil contempt actions, there are inherent um, contempt actions within Congress itself. Um, and, you know, what's happening is that um, the velocity of participation is so powerful that a lot of witnesses and potential witnesses are thinking to themselves, I better testify because otherwise people are gonna testify about me. Yeah, and they're, you know, so a lot of people are getting in it because they don't want the train to leave the station without their opportunity to speak.
1: Right. Now, Trump has dangled pardon pledges for January six participants. How does that impact how you're approaching this on the January six committee and how should the DOJ approach this separately?
2: Well, let's start with how America should approach it. I mean, what you have is a guy who waged um, violence. Um, and unlawful battle to overthrow a presidential election, who is saying his conduct was perfect and he would do it again. And not only would he do it again, he would do it again he would get in and then he would pardon the insurrectionists. I mean, that's quite close to being a declaration of war on our constitutional order. Um, And um, so that's something that primarily the American people need to take seriously. Um, You know, we've already seen that Donald Trump is lawless and incorrigible. Um, So, uh, you know, we will try to get um, testimony from him. We will try to get him to answer questions uh, on the record, but nothing in our strategy depends on that. Now, the last Trump question here, Uh,
1: a few days ago, we heard Trump admit that His goal was to get Pence to overturn the election results. He says this in broad daylight. And that's in addition to, you know, as I mentioned, Trump openly dangling pardons for January 6th participants. Of course, his demand to the Georgia Secretary of State to find 11,780 votes, which was recorded. I've said over and over that just because you say something in broad daylight doesn't automatically make it not criminal. It just makes it criminal in broad daylight. How confident are you in the DOJ and in state attorneys general that there will be accountability. And what's at risk if we don't hold Trump accountable?
2: Well, you're right that if you rob a bank in broad daylight, you still rob a bank. <laughs> uh, yeah. and to just like if you, if you rob a bank with a, a mask on, um, that is not more culpable than robbing a bank with taking your mask off. And right. you know, Donald Trump, of course, won't wear a mask anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so all of that is true look i think they're all going to get their comeuppance i think that the public is increasingly uh, sick of the lying um the, the problem is that he's been consolidating his power and control over the republican party which today you know uh voted in uh the executive committee to censure liz cheney and adam Kinziger for the crime of telling the truth Right. They should be censuring Donald Trump and ejecting him from their party. But instead, they're trying to expel and censure Liz Cheney. Um, What a scandal for Abraham Lincoln's party. He started that party as a party of union. He hated the know nothings. He hated the racism. His Lyceum address was all about the dangers of mob violence after the attack on Elijah Lovejoy, an abolitionist newspaper editor. And he said if downfall ever comes to America, it will not be from monsters abroad. It will be from the evil within. And he was clearly thinking about the slave power and racism in the country, the same forces, uh, the same kind of forces that have arrayed themselves today against the constitutional order.
1: the, The DOJ is looking into the fake electoral college certifications, and that's in a number of states. It's in Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, PA, Wisconsin, Nevada, and New Mexico. I I know you have no visibility into into justice, into DOJ, but how much criminal exposure is there for those fake electors
2: and those who sent the certifications in? Well, that varies from state to state, and it also depends on what, what specifically they were saying. Some of them were extremely nervous about what they were doing, and they took care to make provisos that mitigated somewhat the claim that they were the official electors from particular states but others just you know they, they just shot for the moon and they said we are the we are the official electors from this state and which of course you would need to do if you wanted to contest the election and try to throw the whole thing into chaos and that's what that's what i believe their centralized organ organizers were urging them to do so we have to look very carefully at what they said in what context to determine whether there was forgery, whether there was mail fraud, whether there was wire fraud, whether you know it was part of a seditious conspiracy to overthrow the election and the government
1: and would that be something that's that's uh, prosecuted on the state level or at a federal level
2: again, you have to look at what specific offenses are in play. I mean, there's no generalized federal offense of fraud in um, 18 U.S.C., but it's mail fraud and it's wire fraud. So you can't use the U.S. mails to deprive the public of its right to honest services. Um, That's been upheld by the Supreme Court, that component of the mail fraud statute, just like you can't use it as a device or an artifice to deprive someone of their property you can't deprive the public itself of honest services, so I think they're on very shaky ground there in terms of both mail fraud and wire fraud. But there are clearly state fraud and election fraud statutes that are in play. I mean, I read today about a woman who just got sentenced to six years in jail in Tennessee, and um, she's uh, she's in Memphis, Tennessee. She was in jail for, and then she was on probation. And she got out, and by getting out, she thought she could register a vote again. But her probation wasn't actually over. But you can see what the confusion was. But yeah. the prosecutor brought the hammer down her, down on her, and brought her prosecution for election fraud, for voter fraud, and she just got sentenced to six years in jail. Six years, and, and that's and that's one person. What's going to happen to these
1: people who tried to deprive the voices of tens of millions of people?
2: Well, ex- that's exactly my point. The, these are. These fake electors, these fraudulent electors, were trying to deprive the entire public of its right to participate in the presidential election by essentially stealing the election. That's a much bigger deal than one person voting illegally by accident. Yeah. Of course, she's an African American woman. So you've got to ask other questions about what's taking place there. But if we're going to take voter fraud seriously at that micro level, which is so episodic and essentially irrelevant in terms of election outcomes. Certainly we gotta take it seriously in terms of people trying to hijack the entire election.
1: Right, well said. So I wanna move over to you. A few days ago uh, on January 30th, that would have been your son Tommy's birthday. You honored him in your book, Unthinkable, Trauma Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. How are you doing? Like, are you and your family as okay as you can be?
2: Well, I suppose by definition, we're as okay as we can be now. I mean, um, I can certainly talk about Tommy without dissolving into tears and grief, which is what it was like for the first several months. I mean, I just couldn't talk about him, you know, and uh, usually I can do it. And, uh, you know, the book and all of the writing helped me to articulate a lot of different Solemn emotions I've been experiencing since we lost him. But, um, uh, you know, a a dazzling bright star went out in my life when uh, we lost him. But I do believe I carry Tommy with me in my heart. And in my soul. And there are just a lot of people who love him, including a lot of people who didn't know about him before, but are like reading his poetry and reading his plays and learning what he was all about. I mean, he was like a a visitor from a time 500 years from now when everything's worked out all right. And we've gotten beyond war and poverty and these things. I mean, Tommy used to say there was a time when there was slavery and there was a time when there were witchcraft trials and there was, you know, A lot of brutal things took place, and we got beyond them as a species. We got beyond them as a people. Um, And so we can keep evolving, but uh, we need to hang real tough for democracy right now because we got forces not just in America but all over the world that would drag us back to the worst darkness of the 20th century, the fascism, the Nazism, the racism.
1: I know you've done a lot of interviews about the book, and so you don't really ever get any relief from talking about this traumatic event because the traumatic event is the book. Has that been harder than you thought, or, or you know, because you've been you've done a lot of media appearances? Has that been in some way therapeutic, or?
2: No, it's been good to talk to people and to, you know, to connect with other people about it. I mean, we're we live in an age of trauma, really bad trauma, and we're not the only family that's lost someone you know, in 2020, it was in the last day of 2020, but, um, you know, we're up around a million now from COVID-19, a million in the opioid crisis, people we've lost, um, gun violence and the mental and emotional health crisis, you name it, I mean, so there are a lot of people out there who have written me about their stories and what's going on with them and, um, you know, trauma, cheats you of what's most precious and important to you in your life. Uh, But the other side of it is it connects you to people and allows you to grow in wisdom and understanding of other people's pain and sorrow. So that's all right. It was it was therapeutic writing my book. When I did the uh, audio version, that was very difficult, it was very hard to read it aloud. But I have found this process of talking about it a a nice thing, you know, in terms of connecting me to other people and, um, you know, in in getting to talk about Tombow like that.
1: You'd mentioned people writing to you. Was there any feedback that was especially memorable for you?
2: Oh man, I mean, you know, we've got, I don't know how many letters now, but certainly more than 15,000 letters and emails. And um, I think about lots of them you know a lot um you know there are other people who've lost um family members in the same way that we did um and um you know people have very meaningful things to say about that and how to think about it um you know we've heard from a lot of people who um were traumatized by January 6th and who had their faith in America shaken by what they saw on that day. And um, you know, and they're they're finding hope in seeing other people fight for America and fight for our institutions. They want to see people fighting back, and I agree. I want to see people fighting back too. I mean, this has got to be personal for us. Um, you know the people that came to tear down america on that day were serious and if you look at their websites they're saying the only thing they regret is they didn't bring their firearms with them they left them yeah. back in the hotels and the cars and donald trump wants to whitewash the whole thing says his rioters greeted the police with hugs and kisses which is presumably how 150 of them ended up in the hospital or wounded or injured
1: yeah how can people who watch or listen to this help? I know you have a memorial fund. Is that the best way that we can help?
2: Oh yeah, well, um, we, we created a memorial, the Tommy Raskin Memorial Fund for people and animals, um, which you can find if you check it out. Um, I'll put the
1: link to that in the post description as well.
2: Great, I mean, it's, you know, it's run by Tommy's sisters and cousins and his friends. It's a kind of a younger generation thing and they've already given away hundreds of thousands of dollars to causes important to Tommy, including civilian relief and resettlement from the civil war in Yemen, which Tommy was working on, um, and um, relief in Haiti from the most recent earthquake. And Tommy was a passionate vegan. And so a lot has also gone to animal welfare, animal rights groups. Uh, They're doing really interesting stuff and they've raised Uh, more than a million dollars, and they've been able to put it back into the causes important to Tommy. And of course, politically, um, I'm going to be spending uh, this year on the project that Tommy helped me to create when he was a a boy called Democracy Summer, which is for young people to come and get involved in, uh, well, not just my campaign now, but democratic campaigns across the country. It's been adopted by the DCCC, Um, and to learn about the history of social struggle in the country, and the struggle for the right to vote and to participate, and then where we are today, with all these, you know, anti-democratic instruments, the whole bag of tricks that the GOP uses to thwart majority rule, the filibuster, voter suppression, statutes, right-wing judicial activism, gerrymandering of our congressional districts. So we study all that, and then we study what can be done, and then we we mobilize the young people to go out and to register people to vote and educate people and to canvass in the neighborhood so people can check out Democracy Summer too.
1: Great. Well, I would highly recommend if anybody's listening and has anybody that can, they can refer that to, uh, that would be the experience of a lifetime. So, look, you know, I, I can't even begin to imagine what you went through, but I can say that between losing your son and then showing up a few weeks later to be the face of the movement to protect American democracy, that you've shown more strength and courage than anyone on this planet will ever show. Uh, You know, you're as good as it gets. So thank you for taking the time today. It was an honor to have you on again.
2: Well, thank you, Brian. It's kind of you to say that stuff. I don't think it's true. I, I see people acting with extraordinary courage every day. I just, I did exactly what I felt I had to do. I didn't know anything else I could do, but I appreciate your saying that. And thank you for having me on.
3: Figure Lending, LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org.
1: Thanks again to Jamie Raskin. Now we've got Texas State Representative James Talarico. James, thanks for coming back on. Thanks
3: for having me. Glad to be back
1: here. So Texas is now dealing with another cold snap. So, you know, first of all, how are you doing? Is everybody safe Are all your people okay?
3: Yeah, thankfully, you know, this time around, uh, we've got power and and heat and water, all things we didn't have um, last year during the the statewide blackout. Um, So but this was a much milder storm. So glad we cleared this this very low bar. Well, you know, Texans
1: were told by Governor Abbott the last time around, I guarantee the lights won't go out. And yet now, you know, already as of, as of this recording, there are over 70,000 Texans who don't have power, you know, even despite the fact that this is a milder storm than last time. So, you know, what's the deal? What, what, what happened to Abbott's guarantee?
3: Yeah, so you're exactly right. You know, in November, uh, he said that he can guarantee the lights will stay on. Uh, and then a few days before this most recent winter storm, uh, he said no one can guarantee that there won't be a load shed event. And that that kind of sounds confusing to folks who aren't well versed in in the Texas electricity grid. But a load shed event is just a planned blackout. Um, so he he's essentially walking back his his guarantee in real time because he realizes that you know the the root causes of of last year's blackout have not been addressed um, and and haven't been fixed. Um, and he knows that because he took massive campaign contributions. From the oil and gas industry for not fixing those problems, uh, and so he's well aware of that fact, and that's why he started to walk back his his uh, his promise just a few days before the the latest winter storm.
1: And obviously, you know, Texas lawmakers last time around they they offered companies a loophole to opt out of weatherization requirements. The loophole being that natural gas companies could just not declare themselves to be critical infrastructure with the state, right. and then all of a sudden they don't have to they don't have to weatherize their equipment. That's right. Why allow a loophole undermining the entire point of the bill?
3: <laughs> well, the answer to that question is almost always money, right? <laughs> yeah. um, our, we, we operate within a corrupt political system. And, and I don't just say this as a, as a Democrat going after Greg Abbott. It's true for both political parties um, at all levels of government, unfortunately. Um, but in, in Texas, there are no campaign contribution limits. Um, so, unlike federal races for Congress, here in Texas, anybody can give you as much money as they want. And in fact, Greg Abbott got a million-dollar check from a guy named Kelsey Warren, um, whose company made billions off of the blackout last year. So Kelsey Warren's company is raking in all these profits from the blackout. He turns around and writes a million-dollar check to Governor Abbott to ensure that reforms aren't made that would interfere with his profit margins, um, and as a result, are going to Endanger uh, the lives of more Texans in the years to come. And, you know, I know, Ryan, you know this, but it's really important to remember that 700 people died in our state last year because of this blackout. People in one of the richest states, in the richest country in the world, froze to death in their homes. Um, Texans died from carbon monoxide poisoning because they turned on their car and their garages to try to stay warm. I heard from mothers who were clutching their babies to their chest just to try to keep them warm. I mean, it was a, a, a moral crime what happened in this state. And the fact that people like Greg Abbott are lining their pockets um, as a result of, of this mass casualty event uh, is unconscionable to me and, and I think should be unconscionable to, to everyone, no matter what your political affiliation is. And, you know, this this
1: issue wasn't even Republicans' priority, wasn't even Abbott's priority. Right. I mean, you know, as well as anyone that when they could have been actually solving this issue, they were focused on passing right. voter suppression bills and abortion restrictions, yeah. uh, both of which were passed, by the way, with against the desire of the vast majority of Texans. Yeah. What's the response to this gross mismanagement of priorities been like in Texas? Like, do people realize, do people
3: recognize that misprioritization? Um, no, and here let me explain why, and this is what 's hard about some of these things it 's very reminiscent of Obamacare back in two thousand and nine two thousand and ten it 's such a complex policy issue that it 's really easy to confuse voters um, right. so texans like uh, Texas Republicans like Greg Abbott are going around saying they passed uh, reforms to the power grid, um, which is true now the The problem is that they reformed the wrong part um, of our energy system. they focused on power plants. Rather than fossil fuel industries, um, and as as everyone who who understands the power grid in Texas will will tell you, the natural gas industry is to blame for the blackout last year. It wasn't power plants. Uh, it wasn't renewable energy. You know, I think you may remember that Governor Abbott went on Fox News during during the blackout to blame wind turbines, which was absurd. But the the culprit uh, is very clearly the natural gas industry. They were the first domino to fall in kind of a a series of cascading failures uh during the blackout but if it if if the natural gas industry had spent the extra money to winterize their facilities in texas we would not have had a blackout period and that same industry knows they don't want to spend that money and that's why they turn around and pay off texas republicans and greg abbott to ensure those reforms aren't made and that their profit margins aren't aren't reduced, um, even when it would save people's lives, so the point is, Texans and people around the country need to call bullshit when people say that they have reformed the power grid because it's not true. Um, they may have made some cosmetic reforms, uh, but true reform would require that we uh, mandate winterization of the natural gas industry.:
1: That's so weird because I remember watching Fox around this time uh, last year, and was Definitely told that it was the fault of the Green New Deal, which I didn't think was in place in Texas. But apparently, not only was it enacted, but it was actually responsible for the entire power grid failure.
3: Well, and, and let me just say, so, you know, yesterday during this latest freeze, and, I, and, and we should all recognize that this winter storm here in Texas this week um, was much less severe than the one in 2021 or the one in 2011, 10 years earlier, that had led to similar blackouts. So this was, like I said, a very low bar to clear this week. But even with that low bar, we still saw some pretty significant decreases in natural gas supply, which, as I mentioned, was the cause of the first blackout. So clearly, the problem has not been addressed, and this should be a flashing, uh, you know, flashing red light, um, a ringing alarm bell that that we haven't addressed the root causes of last year's blackout, and and we need to. Otherwise, we're going to see. Um, As you know, with climate change and with these these severe weather events, uh, we're going to see this this occur again in the near future, and we need to know why that is. It's because Greg Abbott and Texas Republicans are corrupt, and they've chosen their donors over the lives of Texans.
1: Yeah, well said. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about midterms in the upcoming election. You know, obviously we we are in a big midterm cycle this year. Republicans have done everything they they could to give themselves the advantage in the state. Yeah. How are Democratic efforts to get people? registered going in spite of all of that?
3: I mean, we're trying our hardest. I'm, I'm out there knocking about 100 doors a day um, in my district, and I'm, I've spent, I'm spending most of my time helping people overcome um, the voter suppression uh, policies that were passed last year by the Republican majority here in Texas. Um, so, for instance, part of that voter suppression bill that we were protesting, that we broke quorum over, and I know you were very involved in helping us do that. One of the main provisions of that bill was making it harder uh, to vote by mail in Texas and adding more stringent requirements to your mail-in application. And
1: And and now those rejection rates are as high as 50%, correct?
3: That's exactly right. We are seeing the direct result of that policy change here in Texas as we speak in the primary, where up to half of mail-in ballot applications have been rejected. Not because counties want to reject them, but because the new law um, you know, forces them to because there's a technical problem on the mail-in application, or the the voter wasn't able to jump through all the various hoops that Texas Republicans have now put in place. And so, you know, it's the the law is working as intended. It's up to us to try as best we can to uh, to inform voters about what they need to do uh, to to overcome voter suppression. Um, but, you know, that's a, it's a it's a, a a difficult task ahead of us. Uh, but if anybody is is up to the challenge, I know it's Texas Democrats. Um, as as the nation saw last year, we have spines of steel and we're not afraid to fight. Um, and I know that will be true in 2022. And, and, you know,
1: by the way, you yourself were a victim of of that exact uh, that exact those exact voter suppression efforts. You were gerrymandered out of your original district.
3: That's right. Yeah. I, so, you know, Brian, as you helped us. Raise funds uh, to support our quorum break, uh, which was an expensive endeavor to to stay out of the state for that long. Uh, and we were able to stay out for more than a month because of your help and the help of of a bunch of your um, your listeners. Uh, and I was involved in coordinating and organizing that quorum break, and so uh, predictably, I was punished for that that effort, and I was drawn out of the district that I represented in the House for two terms. And they they did it by uh, you know, dividing communities of color uh, and and robbing people of color of their of their political power in my district. Um, so, not only is it um, you know a partisan ploy uh, to get rid of democratic opposition like me, but it's also um, a time honored uh, racist tactic of uh, of preventing people of color from accessing the franchise.
1: Well, again, thank you, uh, James, and stay safe and uh, and you're welcome back anytime.
3: Thank you, Brian. I just I want to make sure I thank you and your listeners for always um, having our backs here in Texas. Um, I know um, you and and folks who listen to your program don't necessarily live here, but both fighting back against voter suppression and also trying to prevent another blackout, um, you and and your listeners have have always had our back, and I just want to thank you for that.
1: Thanks again to James Tellerico. That's it for this episode. Talk to you next week.